This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS Sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and The Future for Investors. We're joined, as always, by Lee Chen Ren, the Director of Modern Alpha for Wisdom Tree, who's live in the studio with me. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of some investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today. We have Samuel Rines and Danielle DiMartino Booth on the phone with us for the hour. We're going to talk about some discussions we're having in Maine about uh, modern monetary theory, uh, MMT, big discussions on the economy, policy. Uh, it would be great to catch up with Sam and Danielle on the show here today. Uh, but before that, Professor Siegel. We're going to get some commentary. It's been a big week, a lot of volatility, some records on the bond side. Uh, we're curious yeah. to get what's your sense of what's going on. Well, that's, that's obviously big news. astounding on the bond side. The 30-year dipping uh, below 2%, the first time actually in the whole history of the United States that its longest-term bond has yielded less than 2%. That is an all-time record low for the 30-year. The 10-year did dip. Uh, below uh, 150, it's a little bit above that now. It's a little bit, a, a few basis points above its low. That was actually uh, reached three years ago. Uh, so uh, we got even more inversion of the curve. Uh, this is what worried the market, sent it down 800 points. Um, uh, you know, I, I mentioned last week I'm calling for a 50 basis point cut. By the Fed, uh, I think they should try to undo this inversion of the curve. Um, what uh, now? The economic data wasn't so bad. Actually, the retail sales yesterday was really quite good. Um, and the people I followed now, we we had GDP second and third quarter just below two percent. Now they've nudged it up just to two percent. This is not great, but again, no recession. We're not seeing any of the data just fall off the cliff. Uh, we also see, obviously, uh, Trump is very cognizant of the political ramifications of the tariffs, as you know, for the sensitive Christmas items. He has, you know, delayed the uh, the imposition of those September 1st tariffs um, so that uh, it won't be as bad. There's a little bit of hope that talks are going to get underway. It is still my feeling that we will not get the full 25% tariffs on all the goods. Um, and by the way, it is the, even more than the inversion of the term structure, which does worry the stock market. It is the tariff situation by far, which is the controlling uh, issue impacting uh, the general market. It wants a deal. It wants any deal. Maybe not the ideal deal, but... Any deal that takes the you know a big tariffs off uh, the table, and if we saw such a deal, we would see a big 10, 15 percent rally. I think in equities, without such a deal and with more you know coming, I think it's basically up and down, up and down, um, and and looking at the data. How do you sense uh, the timing of this deal? Like if you're if you're in Trump's shoes negotiating, like is he going to try to get it done this year, next year? What where do you think he comes? Well, I, I, I think he's I think he needs to get it done really by Christmas. I mean, and and by the way, people say can he do it and then take it off next summer? No, if if we have a recession or significant slowdown or inflation because of this deal, it's going to be in the press for months and months and months. Even if you know he says now the deal is made and things are going to correct. People have a memory, and they say, yeah, but why did you make us go through this to begin with? Uh, 
so my feeling is is that he can't really let it go. He's got. I think he's got to solve it this year. It's we we've got to be on a good glide course next year. Um, in fact, I'm just looking at a couple of uh, his, his approval ratings, which actually got to the best level ever before all this tariff uh, noise uh, um, started a month ago. Uh, has definitely been slipping recently, and again, all the talk of the tariffs um, and, and and what it could what what it could cause, along with other issues, obviously that uh, that have been you know, they're always on the front burner. But uh, he he needs the tariff solved. I think he's going to get it solved. But nothing is a <laughs> nothing is a sure thing uh, at this time. Um, so I, I saw the uh, the ten year tips yield went back into negative territory. So our, yeah. our real bond returns are looking negative from today. Real bond returns we have had negative ten year tips uh, right now. Uh, you're right there. I'm looking at my screen. It's one basis point negative. Um, of course, what is so astounding um, is that in Europe, the nominal yields are negative. Uh, the, the German is minus 70, the 10-year minus 70 basis points. I mean, that means that, you know, for every 100 euros you put in a 10-year bond, uh, you're, gonna, you're basically going to get 93 euros back 10 years from now. Um, I mean, it, it is just astounding to, to even consider it. I do think one thing is, 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 is really important, something I pointed out. We're beginning to get the popular financial, um, uh, those that contributors, particularly we got the news from PIMCO and jo- Joachim Fels, their chief world economist, saying do not blame central banks for these low yields. These are strong demographic factors that are pushing yields lower, lengthening of lifetimes, risk aversion of investors. You know, something that you and I on this program have discussed many, many times before, but it's the first time that it has broken into the popular press. Barron's had a big article on it. Bloomberg had a big article on Fels' study. It's beginning to say, yeah, you know what, these are, these are really longer-term factors depressing yields, uh, and it's something way beyond what the central bank is doing. Well, very good. Thanks for some commentary to start our, our show today. Thank you very much. See you next week. See you. Uh, Lee Chen uh, in the studio here with me really quick. I mean, the other big story, uh, we haven't quite hit on Hong Kong. There's a lot of stories, news on Hong Kong this week. Any uh, of your views? I know you're were, you were tweeting me some uh, pictures that are in the, in the Hong Kong newspapers. Yes, I think uh, this is really one of the biggest news uh, in Hong Kong that uh, the richest uh, um, man in Hong Kong, um, Lee Chachen, uh, he, he, Lee Chachen, and he bought the front page um, ads of all the, uh, pretty much all the significant newspapers in Hong Kong. Uh, essentially, there were two posters. The the one is uh, somewhat uh, aimed, you know, toward uh, the protesters, saying that, you know, stop the violence. We all love Hong Kong, love China, love uh, tolerance, love rule of law. The best intentions could bring the worst um, out, out you know, the because some of the protests has has turned uh, violent, and also it's a little bit dig on the Hong Kong police as well, because you know he, they have been under really scrutiny. Uh, Hong Kong police used to be portrayed as very much you know the hero, uh, very positive in all those Hong Kong movies, but uh, this during the, these protests, um, some of their tactics has been a little bit questioned. The other poster is really a very cryptic uh, message. It. A use a poem from you know years ago, warning the empress you know don't kill your own children, um, uh, you know for the sake of uh, you know country or or just a, a kind of question. This can be interpreted in so much ways, and I think that shows how you know uh, the richest man is very skillful in navigating, trying to send a message in many different ways, because you can interpret this as, you know, asking China to have, you know, restrained, but also asking, you know, people in Hong Kong that, you know, uh, you know, violence could lead to even, you know, worse outcomes. So 
This is front page news, and I have a feeling that these protests will die down a little bit because they have not gotten、uh, a lot of the support about the anti, you know, the the treaty that you know got so much people, ten percent of population, to on the street.、Um, that has you know been tabled. So right now, what the protests are looking for, I feel it doesn't have enough. But on the and is this one is also. Does not have a leader, so you know the tactics. Some of the protest tactics has been called into question by just ordinary citizens. So I think it's somewhere, you know, after this should be some kind of quiet down. But the thing, like you know, we did a、uh, episode the last、um, half an hour talk with the professor Muluan from、um, uh, Singapore's National University, is that really the people are demanding some kind of independent commission. But the government of Hong Kong is not. That, so the second biggest news is also something interesting in the U.S. Probably people are not used to it. Hong Kong is going to give a huge amount of money to ordinary citizens because Hong Kong's government is actually pretty rich.、Um, mm. Tax cuts.、They're... They so they don't do tax.、Uh, their tax is already very low、uh, compared to the U.S. fifteen percent. So they're giving a huge amount of money as a way to appease the populace. That you、mm. could get, you know, one month of your rent if you're low income to be, you know, the government is going to pay it for you. Or if you have kids, you're going to get、uh, a big stipend. Uh, for you to spend money, so I think I think it's this is a perfect point- transition to our conversation with Sam and Danielle. <laughs>、uh, so we're going to be talking with Sam Rines, who's who's an economist at Avalon Advisors,、uh, and Danielle DiMartino Booth, who's、uh, an author of the the, da- the the Daily Feather. She's got an economic consulting firm, formerly of the Dallas Fed. Both are authors of books、uh, with with Danielle's The Fed Up and. And Sam Rines, who's written a book after normal, making sense of the global economy,、um, and and they're both very sharp economists. Danielle, Sam, welcome to our program. Thanks for Great having me. Great to be here today. It's going to be good to talk to you guys. And so you heard a little bit about Hong Kong starting to give some money to the people, and sort of this、uh, this idea of modern monetary theory. Sam, I know maybe we'll start off with you. You had some some remarks at at Camp Kotak here in Maine on what you see are the trends in the global economy and what is sort of inevitable policy. Maybe you could just give a recap a recap of of your thoughts of what's going on and and where the economy is going. That that this MMT is sort of an inevitable inevitable future for us. Certainly, and so the general thrust of the discussion that I led was part partly that it's an inevitable policy, not because it's something that all economists are going to agree on is a fantastic framework for the future, but because its outcomes are politically expedient and the politics behind it are pretty compelling. Right? You have the you know you have the Trump、uh, wing of the Republican Party that can get behind it, and you have the Warren. Uh, division of the liberal side that can get behind it—that's a powerful political force to pick and choose different parts of economic theory and economic frameworks that allow them to pursue popular、uh, popular projects. Right? Whether it's funding healthcare, whether it's funding a space force and a trip to Mars.、Um, now, when, when you see what's going on today, like where, how do you see? The current,、uh, you heard Professor Eagles lead off on a little bit on where the economy is. What, what's your sense on where we are? How sh- how quickly are are these MMT discussions going to really come into the discussion? Is it now? I, I think you're probably going to hear it continue to pick up, both leading into the 2020 election、uh, from the Democratic side, but also from the Republican side and Trump, as we try to figure out how we're going to stimulate the economy in the face of you know rising global risks. Uh, the potential for the U.S. consumer to slow down and therefore, you know, increase the chances of a U.S. recession. That increases the opportunity to really talk about what MM what the MMT framework policies are going to be as we begin to evolve, you know, the towards the 2020 election. So I think it's I think we begin to see what that framework looks like and how it could play out、uh, from both sides as we approach the election. So Danielle, let me bring you in here.、Um, I, I know Professor Siegel didn't see his comments were he didn't see a, a recession here. You have some of the indicators that are a little softer from the notes that Equal Intelligence that I'm following. What any anything you want to talk about? Just the current dynamics before we get into this、uh, this broader discussion. Uh, sure. No, happy to.、Uh, you know, it, you know, I, I'm watching all of the <clears throat> the Bubble Vision headlines about cross currents, and the one thing that's that's been sticking out to us is. 
that we've seen initial jobless claims very slowly weaken. And now on a nationwide basis, initial jobless claims are down 0.2% over 2018. So we are, oh, excuse me, over the prior two months. So we are just on the cusp of, of 2019, where we are initial jobless claims nationwide being up year over year. And the reason I bring that up is because if you look at some of the regional manufacturing surveys, and we, we, we obviously study the weeds at Quill Intelligence of those, it kind of goes order flow, backlogs, inventories, and the last thing to get hit tends to be employment. And what was so curious about yesterday's Empire and Philly Feds that were released on the same day, which, by the way, is very unusual, um, Philly almost always follows, was that they both had significant uh, weakening in their payrolls data, in their employment indices, and in their work week indices. And it was it was a parallel thing. Normally, those two don't necessarily move in tandem. So we're thinking that the very last shoe to fall in terms of the data are going to it, it's going to be employment, and that will be a big deal. We saw in the University of Michigan data that came out this morning uh, that people's perceptions of job availability is deteriorating very fast. Not only that. But every single component of consumer confidence also deteriorated. And that is also an unusual thing to see. So we think that the last leg is going to be weakening employment. And there's really nothing that Trump can do uh, to get out in front of that. CEOs are watching their share prices fluctuate wildly. And that should give them the kind of the, the confidence to say, you know what, we've been discussing these layoffs we've been wavering back and forth but you know what if if the share price is going to go crazy like this and stock market volatility is advertising that something's not right uh then we're just going to go ahead and push forth with those cost cuts um moving forward so these are the kind of things that we're watching at this juncture we're talking with danielle demartina both who's a ceo and chief strategist for quill intelligence sam rines chief economist at avalon advisors I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Um, and so, Danielle, when you look at the what the bond market is is saying, you've got these inverted curves. The 30-year curve was was below. I even think it's still below Fed funds at the moment. I mean, do you what what's your sense for what the Fed should do, what they're going to do? Do you think they'll react in this 50 basis point type fashion? Well, you know, it's it's really hard to say. Markets have just about priced in the 50 basis points. And that is, you know, as a former Fed insider, that's kind of the point of no return as far as concerned, which is why when John Williams of the New York Fed came out right before Fed blackout, before the, the July 31st meeting, when, when Williams came out with a speech that suggested 50 basis points was a slam dunk, that's why Powell directed the New York Fed spokes, uh, spokesperson to come out and say, no, no, he didn't mean that. It was just an academic paper. It's, you know, it's, it's just going to be an insurance rate cut. That's why the Bill Dudley op-ed followed and that of Jenny Ellen as well. It was all very well orchestrated to say it's only 25 basis points. Now we're hearing that there's a gag order within the Fed, uh, at least at the Federal Reserve Board in, in D.C., and Powell saying no more interviews, no more speeches. Let's, let's try and, and keep the disruption down to a minimum. Of course, he can't control the Federal Reserve District's. They're outside of his direct purview, but it is fascinating to watch the Fed trying to get control of markets' perceptions of rate cut probabilities. But again, if, if it is priced into the market, it should be where they go on September the 18th. I mean, it's funny because you have the two people who are probably the most dovish on the committee. You had Bullard yesterday. Kashkari's headlines are streaming while we're talking. And, uh, you know, they're, they're out there, you know, and, and if, if Bullard is your most dovish, I think he claimed he's the most dovish. Um, but he, he seemed to not be so in such in a hurry. No, and, and, and that's the thing. I mean, internally, it's very obvious that, that, that Powell, the, the double dissent in favor of the 31st, George and Rosengren. Um, Bullard, who is as dovish as it gets, all of this is, is, is a message from Jay Powell saying, I don't want to be as aggressive as what the markets are demanding of me. The flip side of it is, you know, as, as, as Professor Siegel said coming in, 
if they don't uninvert this yield curve, the continuing damage to the U.S. economy is just going to deepen. And we won't be talking about cross currents. We'll be talking about recession, which to Sam's point, that gets us into discussions very quickly of modern monetary uh, theory very quickly. Siegel, I heard him say yesterday, he wants the Fed funds to be 50 basis points below the 10-year, not 50 basis points above the 10-year. So he would rather see, you know, eventually 100 basis points pretty quickly, but, uh, you know, just immediately the 50. Um, Sam, let, let, we, we went de- deep into MMT quickly, but maybe you could sort of step back and say, as, as, the, as that debate, for people who are hearing that term and they're not following it all in, in the econ sphere like, like we do, maybe sort of describe what it is that MMT is and how, how that differs from some other views on, on the economy. Sure. So the basic premise of MMT is that you can that the central bank and the treasury or you know the yeah, the treasury are a single entity that funds the government, right? So that's that's the that, that's the basic supposition of MMT versus you know your typical framework of a Keynesian model or DSGE model of the global economy. So what you have from there is something where the the federal government has a direct way to fund its projects uh, through by setting interest rates at a you know at a specific level, not allowing them to fluctuate much, and then uh, issuing as much debt as they believe they can without sparking inflation. And if they happen to spark inflation, uh, they can raise taxes to uh, increase or raise taxes to decrease uh, the level of inflation. Uh, so that's the basic underlying framework for MMT um, versus your typical DSG Keynesian model that has a has a completely different uh, presuppositions about how the economy works. And as, as, as you see where the spending can come from, I mean, where, where, or, or, or where it should be focused on, I mean, where, is it just going to be where, what the politicians of the day, what their own preference is? Like where... Where would you see that spending going? I, I think it's easiest to see the spending going in places where it's politically expedient, it's, it's politically profitable, I guess is the best way to put it, uh, whether that's education or whether that's health care. Those, those tend to be where I think you would see some of the spending on the Democratic side, right? Elizabeth Warren, for instance, with student debt and uh, Medicare for all. I think that's the one of, you know, those are two of the areas that are easy to see some form of an MMT framework working with. Uh, for uh, the Trump administration, it's probably something that looks more like uh, sending a man to Mars or something that really rallies people around a central objective um, that's uh, politically expedient, but also politically not that controversial, right? We want to be the most technologically advanced. We're going to need to do a lot of basic research to get to Mars and put a man on Mars. That's going to benefit the economy, similar to the space race um, with Kennedy. Therefore, you can do it, and therefore, you decide that you're going to spend a lot of money. The Federal Reserve is going to help you finance that, uh, similar to a quantitative uh, easing process, and you're good to go. And so that's is that partly the conversations we're hearing that Trump wants to go by Greenland. He thinks he's gonna he could just uh, <laughs> issue some bonds and and take and take over sort of new new country. Yeah, MMT so, green shoots for Greenland. There you go. Oh gosh, oh gosh, oh gosh. What, <laughs> do we have to go there? Let's not go there. Um, but but you know, I, I think if we could bring it back to the Fed for a moment and kind of some of the underlying points of, of my thesis. And by the way, I uh, the. The, the GIC, which which is a big part of Maine, that they released my entire MMT paper today on their website. So that's out there for all to read. I'm probably going to get slaughtered over the weekend. I, I look most forward to it. Um, but but part I, of the reason I think uh, the Fed is pushing back so hard against rate cuts doesn't actually have to do with the whole ammunition argument. I, I think that, that Trump is so focused on not just getting his rate cuts, but also having the type of stimulus that is helping out in, in, in China and that we found out in the last 24 hours is going to be bazooka-like at the European Central Bank. I think once you see evidence of quantitative easing globally, then you're going to have the Trump tweets start referring specifically to QE. And I, I think that one of the reasons the Fed perceives calls for another iteration of QE, QE4 here in the United States, 
as being kryptonite is because this will be catnip for the MMTers. This is the moment they're waiting for. This is the moment Warren is waiting for. And many politicians, as we head into the final year of campaigning, to say, gee, the Fed wants to bail out Goldman Sachs and the banking industry again, dot, dot, dot. Uh, Shouldn't we just use it? We don't need QE for the banks, the, the, the redux. We need QE for the people. And, you know, the fact that regardless of whether you're from the, the Chicago School of Thought or, you're, or, or, or the Keynesian, whether you're a saltwater, freshwater economist, regardless, all of them agree that MMT is the Antichrist. All of them. Krugman, all, all the way down to, to, you know, people who are in the Austrian schools. They all don't like MMT because it effectively hijacks monetary policy and puts it in the hands of politicians. I, I like the, uh, the MMT is QE for the people instead of QE for Goldman Sachs. I mean, that's a line that resonates with, uh, with a lot of people, I'm sure. Um, and it, it's interesting, you know, the, the negative rate stuff is, as you heard, as you, talk, you mentioned, the ECB bringing out the next big bazooka, you know, and, and it's interesting how, um, you know, one of the big, one of the officials tried to say their bazooka is going to beat the market expectations while, while not trying to change the market expectation at the same time. Um, but uh, as as you look at the negative rate side of the ECB, like how do you see what their bazooka can be that actually can can try to ignite anything? And 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 partly that could be involving going deeper into negative rate territory. I think it's deeper into negative rate territory. But clearly, BlackRock's been very vocal about saying the ECB needs to buy stock. I mean, the next step down the rabbit hole is to follow the Bank of Japan and start buying up the stock market. Yeah. Do you think that? When what's what's your sense in all that? Uh, we're, did you pay me? Yeah, so perfect. So my sense on that is I think they have to do something that's big and that actually hits the periphery uh, a lot more than the periphery has been affected by the current set of quantitative easing. That, to me, is the easiest way to beat expectations. You beat expectations by saying, you know, Greece is now included. We're going to buy more Spain. We're even going to buy a little a little bit of Italy. Uh, you, be, you really beat that by beginning to have a much larger quantitative easing than markets expect and by buying things that markets don't expect uh, to buy. I don't know that they go directly to equities. I think that's, that's, that needs to be a little bit further down the road. Maybe, maybe that's a December announcement if you know, they need to do more. Uh, but I do think that you can do a lot by changing the capital key and by buying a lot of those peripheral bonds, getting you know freeing up markets that you know haven't really benefited from quantitative easing um, in the in the EU, and really beginning to uh, put some of the pieces in place for buying equities, maybe some more corporate bonds, uh, et cetera, or maybe even uh, going after the euro in a more direct way through uh, potentially buying U.S. assets or intimating that you may buy U.S. assets, something along those lines. Well, that'd be interesting. We're going to have to take a very short break, um, but stay with us. We're going to have Sam Ryan, Daniel DiMartino back with us after the break. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 132. We're talking about the global economy and some discussions we're all having in, in Maine just uh, just last week, uh, a weekend. Um, and it's sort of really interesting, this, this MMT as QE for the people versus QE for the banks and, and what you know what are the governments going to do to help uh, to help support the economies? And Sam, it was interesting just talking on Europe. It, it, what are you know where the rates are the lowest, right? And and actually in Europe, it's not like you even have to pay to borrow and do more of this uh, MMT. They're getting paid to borrow. They should be borrowing up the wazoo. Why why do you think they're not? It's it's really it's really interesting that they're not borrowing to spend. Uh, I. To be honest, I have no idea why they aren't. It's it's not as though it would be politically unpopular t- in Germany to borrow a little money, when you know for ten years you get you know you get paid to do it if you're the government, right? You get paid to lend. I I don't really know that there's a sensible argument not if you're Germany not to borrow a significant amount of longer term money at negative rates. I mean they're you know they're negative all the way out the curve. You, know, you borrow there, you spend on infrastructure, you I mean you can help you know rebuild whatever roads need to be built in the peripheral countries, Greece, you know, you can help out there. You also build up some popular support for the EU, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't really know that there's a sensible excuse not to borrow. It's interesting, you know, today we had the uh, the Spiegel leak that uh, maybe they're going to spend a little bit. Uh, they're going to begin some deficit spending. It's, it's interesting, but I'm not going to hold my breath until Germany actually does it. 
Yeah, I guess debt is yeah. the the word for shame in 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 German. Is something like that? Is that Danielle? Something you mentioned? Uh... Uh, yes, I, I was going to jump in with the fact that there are cultural norms that are so difficult for Americans who live and breathe on debt, you know, to comprehend. I think it, I think there really is is cultural underpinnings, and I also read a, a, a piece recently that really resonated because it said that rational investors see this deep dive into negative territory as indicative of an extremely fragile economic backdrop. So it it, it does the opposite; it makes them actually more risk averse than they would otherwise be if rates were normalized and positive. Yeah, and I was reading an MMT piece that actually tried to flip all this stuff on its head and say low rates is contractionary for spending, that you know there's less income going out into people's hands and there's less income to be spending, and you got to do the opposite of what traditional monetary policy is, which is trying to lower rates to stimulate borrowing, that you're lowering rates and you're, you're cutting off the income potential of people. I think, uh, may I add, is that I think the real, we have an economist uh, came in a couple uh, months, uh, weeks ago. I think right now the consensus is not yet reached. Like, uh, uh, close to negative or close to zero negative rates will help economically. Until people, you know, believe that it's the case. Because if you look at Japan and Europe, it's right to be skeptical whether these low rates, uh, indeed will stimulate the, the economic growth. And, and, you know, this presents the, the, the classical paradox of thrift. And that is that, you know, especially with an aging demographic, which is a global phenomenon, the, the the less people feel that they can make on the money that they've saved throughout their entire careers, the more they're going to hold back and save as 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 principal, and not invest because they know that they're not going to be able to get the income when they're living on a fixed income in their retirement that they would otherwise if rates were positive. So it, it creates an, an adverse feedback loop of sorts that feeds on itself and keeps consumption. Uh, ceiling, uh, you know, under a ceiling. Yeah, I I think in Japan is really that's that's the case. You don't really see people, you know, a particular older people feeling comfortable enough to spend. And all their assets are in cash. It's like fifty percent of all their assets are in bank deposits, earning zero and yeah. negative. And it's been that way for twenty years. And and I well, would even I mean, argue, I think that, oh, you know, I, I think that you know, to bring this back around to the MMT discussion, you know. I'm jumping ahead to what my conclusion was, but I, I think the greatest impediment to a successful vision of MMT, as described by its most vocal proponents, many of whom are extremely articulate, is you know kind of the backdrop against which MMT would be launched, and that is by definition, you know, a, a time of economic turmoil when when the, the fiscal spending side needed to kick in which means that by definition, you also have other problems on your hand, such as the need to do emergency type of fiscal spending. I'm talking about entitlement benefits, pensions, um, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, you know, that, that backs private pensions. That needs, obviously, funding, the public pension system, life insurance companies, all of these, there'd be many sectors of the economy and within the financial system that would be in, in acute distress that the, the fiscal authorities would have to address immediately with the printing press before you could even get to the Kumbaya universal basic income, much less going to Mars. Now, when, when you look at what the Japan is doing, how close to MMT's theory of you have the government who's borrowing a lot and and uh, and doing all their deficit spending. You got the Bank of Japan who's buying literally every bond that they issue. Um, how close to actual MMT? Is that the experiment? Um, is is it is QE just a form of MMT? We just didn't call it that. Like where where are we in that? I, um, I would uh, Sam, go ahead. Sam, go ahead. Like, I, I would argue that Japan's actually pretty close to trying MMT. In, you, know, you think about how they raise and lower their VAT tax. Um, over time, you need to, you know, that's been a problem, right? That's been a slowing mechanism that they didn't need to do. Um, but when you issue debt, and the central bank monetizes it, and the central bank's also monetizing, you know, or buying half, you know, five percent to ten percent of the stock market, you know, that that is very, very close to the framework of MMT. I would say that it's a it's a pretty close to the most practical 
uh, application of MMT we have to take a look at. Now, it hasn't worked very well. Um, they've had to, you know, they've raised and lowered the VAT at the wrong time, um, slowing the economy more than they probably needed to. Um, so it hasn't been overly successful. But They weren't been... MMT full believers, right? They're putting their foot on the brake while they're putting their foot on the gas at the same time. They can't just do full-fledged, just print. Exactly. And, and, it's, and it's an interesting... Uh, you know, you look at it and you kind of have to say, well, why are they, you know, raising the VAT and not just letting it uh, begin to flow through to the actual economy? And I think at some point they'll realize that they don't need to move the VAT higher and that, you know, for a significant amount of time. And that's when things begin to get really interesting for Japan. Yeah, you got the sort of Ministry of Finance there who's saying, hey, we got all these deficits. And you got Abe who's saying, no, I don't really want to do that. But there, he's sort of bowing in this, uh, in this, in this certain, you know, the current one. We'll see. Uh, I, I think he seems committed not to, to raise it anymore. Um, but it's, it's fascinating that when, when people really worried about all the, the down effects of QE is, well, we're going to print all this currency and it's just going to collapse. And you're like, well, the yen is like the strongest currency around. Like, why is it not collapsing? That's, uh, that's one of the questions I follow. Yeah, um, and to, you know, why is the yen not collapsing? I would say, one, it's it's still used as a reserve currency. It's still a flight to safety. Um, and, you know, it's been in a bull market for, you know, the better part of 25 years, uh, you know, 300 to 100. You know, that's, that's pretty that's a pretty long run. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard when you have a culture that saves a lot. Uh, you have a high debt load that you're not paying much to carry, uh, and you are a net exporter. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good uh, combination for a stronger currency, assuming you don't have a, a debt crisis, and the savings rate takes care of that. Yeah, and I mean, you know, to, to add on with, with kind of the, the Japanese dynamic, you know, if, and, and, and the same goes for the United States, if Japan would be a perfect petri dish for MMT if the yen is the world reserve currency. And that's not going to happen, ironically, because they've got whatever, 300% debt to GDP. But, but reserve currency status, ability to, uh, to print money to, and, and to issue debt in your own currency, and critically not be reliant upon foreign investors in any way in your own sovereign debt market, those are the pillars that make MMT theoretically perfect. It's the United States from Japan is that we do hold reserve currency status. We are very reliant on the kind of strain to finance our debt. And that, I think, is why, relatively speaking, these sovereign it's in command, even um, safe haven positions in the world. Sam, so there was a little bit of, of, of tension there on the line. Um, when, when when you look at where the, the global economy is, we've talked a lot about the, the U.S., Europe, Japan. Um, what, what is your outlook for the rest of the global economy? When you think about the big stories, China is one of the big stories of the year. How, how are you at Avalon looking at portfolios and just the economic pressures of, of what it's all what's all happening? Sure. So our outlook for the rest of this year and early 2020 is a continued slowing globally. Uh, we don't think that you're going to have a significant recovery in fixed investment um, in the U.S. We don't think you're going to have a significant uptick in uh, the Chinese uh, economy, and we don't think you're going to have a significant uptick in the German economy uh, for the remainder of uh, 2019. Th- those are those are the two major ones that we kind of use as our barometers for what the the globe is going to do. Uh, in the U.S., we think that the consumer begins to decelerate somewhat. The, con- you know, the consumption has been extremely strong in the U.S. That's held the U.S. up uh, relative to the rest of the world. Uh, we think you get a slowing down to one and a half, uh, maybe a two percent growth rate there, uh, leaving the U.S. economy at about that uh, for an underlying growth rate for the remainder of this year, um, somewhere between one and a half and two. And then, as we enter 2020, we think you're closer to one percent. Uh, part of the reason in the U.S., part of the reason that that uh, kind of freaks us out from the perspective of uh, a recession is it doesn't take a whole lot to bump you into a negative growth rate if you're relying pretty much solely on the consumer 
uh, and there's no catalyst for fixed investment for capital expenditures to really pick up uh, and begin to carry some of the weight. Uh, so when you put everything on the shoulders of consumers and you begin to see things like the sentiment print this morning, uh, you begin to see a little bit of weakness on the margin in, the, in labor markets. Uh, you really begin to kind of move back and say, wait a second, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot to bump us into a technical recession. Nothing deep, nothing scary, but it doesn't take a lot. Um, so we're in the camp of uh, being very, very prudent, uh, taking, you know, taking some tactical risks, but not being overly aggressive in terms of uh, really piling on the beta here. And, and so when you think about, I mean, the big move this year has been really in, in bonds. Like, so are you a bond bull? You think the 155 on the 10-year is going to head below one? Or are you a uh, time to shorten up some my duration as, as, a, as an economist there? I think it's I think it's time to tighten up on duration a little bit. The, the problem is, you know, what exactly are you doing on duration if you're tightening it up? Um, Fed funds, do... go for two, inverted <laughs> yield curve. Exactly. Well, uh, and, so... you know, sorry, if I could jump in here, before we move away from the consumer, you know, something I've been tweeting out a lot is that 63% of all post-war recessions have featured, an ex- have featured expanding consumption. People just don't realize that you're just, you know, a sneeze away from contraction if all you're doing is relying upon the consumer. The 2.1% GDP print after the second quarter, percentage points of that was the, the federal government reopening, and the rest of it was all consumer, consumer, consumer. And, you know, to Sam's point, you know, how are companies going to be emboldened to do capital expenditures in this kind of a haywire environment? Yeah, I mean that that's sort of what we hear is that, you know, the, you look at the US data was okay, but the, you know, the sort of the, the sentiment is is the capital expenditures, the business fixed investment people are not thinking about making those ex- expansions with uh, all this quote unquote uncertainty from the uh from the trade wars. Isn't um have a quick follow up. Um you I was a little bit surprised that the next year you were forecasting at 1% growth. Uh usually in the election year uh, you know, the incumbent president would do try to do something to, you know, use some of the government uh, uh, policy to stimulate uh, so that, you know, because the economy is really what President Trump also rests on right now. Do, do you think that this time it might not be a factor? I, I don't think it's anywhere near as much of a factor. I think there's there's two reasons for that. One, Congress controls the purse strings to a large degree. Um, it's going to be very difficult to get much in the way of spending that's uh, kind of Republican-approved um, from Trump uh, through the democratically held Congress. I think that makes it very difficult to do fiscal spending. Um, I also think that it's going to be very difficult to get a China trade deal done. Uh, and if you don't get that China trade deal done, you still have trade uncertainty. That, again, affects business investment. Uh, and on top of that, you add the uh, uncertainty surrounding the political environment heading into November 2020, and you add further reason for businesses to just stand pat on investment. So I think it's going – that 1% is our uh, first and second quarter uh, growth, and, and we're leaning towards a little bit lower than that as we swing into the back half of the year. Yeah, if I could add, very few people appreciate what President Trump did – to get reelected when he was first elected, we, we forget about how much demand was pulled forward by that tax stimulus package that we now know has long since worn off. The sugar high is gone. And, you know, to Sam's point, there's nothing I think that Congress can do as it becomes more apparent that we're sliding into recession. They're not going to put the pinky finger to help out whether it's an election year as well, specifically because it is an election year. They won't do anything you know, in terms of infrastructure spending, which would be beneficial to the to the economy uh, long term. I, I think everything waits until after uh, the election comes and goes. And you know, the other factor that we've been watching in the manufacturing sector is the, the threat of the impl- uh, of the imposition of the tariffs that has long since taken place, pushed forward a ton of purchasing. By our factory sector, they they stockpiled in advance of their raw input prices going up, and that created a a second surge of tremendous growth in the economy that has now worn. Again, we're not going to see a repeat of that, which is why if you look at air freight, cargo, 
rail line, intermodal traffic, tra- traffic at the courts, and to cast freight index, they're all in negative territory. Freight was negative for a seventh consecutive month, and they reiterated to say that they year. There's not much Trump can do to get out in front of this. Let me just reintroduce our guests. We're talking with Danielle DiMartino Booth, the CEO of Quill Intelligence, Sam Rides, Chief Economist at Avalon Advisors. Uh, the three of us were together at, at Camp Kotak in Maine last weekend. Um, maybe I could get each of you guys to talk a little bit about anything that you, anything about the camp in Maine that we went to that you thought was interesting, commentary just from, from going there the last few years and, uh, and, and takeaways that you brought back from all discussions there. Sam, maybe start with Sam, you. I'll, I'll, I'll let you first, but no poker talk. <laughs> no, no, don't worry, I won't talk about poker. Um, yeah, so my my major, one of the things that I was kind of happily and, you know, in particularly surprised with this year was when we all decided, when we were all asked to write down kind of if we could have one thing that would boost the economy over the medium to long run, uh, the major, the major finding or the major answer there was education. Uh, I think that's a really interesting outcome you know and there were you know everybody had their own thing you know some you know ranging from student loans to um just improving k through 12 uh and you know somewhere even you know on college etc but i think it was really interesting to hear that you know if we're going to attempt to spur that medium to long term growth we really do need to make an investment in education you know it doesn't necessarily have to be within an mmt framework but i do think that you know that group of people agreeing on that topic was very interesting, and we probably all wouldn't solve it the same way, but I do think that it's indicative of kind of a shift in, you know, if we're going to make investments today and we want them to pay off in the longer run, right, whether it's with the boomers retiring and the deflation and to counteract that and still have some growth or to break out of secular stagnation, however you want to phrase it, I think it's very interesting that education was what people looked to. Uh, that was that was one of my favorite parts. That was you know it was really interesting to hear different people's. Uh, Hi Sam, I would love that. to get that point on. Can you ex- explain a little bit? I mean, in history, U.S. has always lead the world in terms of education. You know, in, it started uh, secondary high school way before uh, Europe, and people believe that you know contributed uh, to the economic. But when when you say education, like specifically in which part? Because there's also talk that. Uh, the college education nowadays is a little bit uh, a bubble. Uh, sure. Yeah, uh, it, it, uh, Sam, if I, if I could hop in for, for just a second. Um, you were the only modern merit. The, the important education, and that was part of what I had written about uh, as an MMT in terms of instead of monetary um Democracy, and that really has to do with K through 12. If you look at her, it has taken such a note that it's a national tragedy. Hey, Sam, um, we have a, a yes, yes. Uh, yeah, and so um, kind of on that, I think that the K through 12 education system in America, while well, we were some of the first to you know to, to provide it as a service. Globally, we we haven't really reinvested much in it. We have a you know, there's a lot that we can improve there. Uh, it's not the best in the world. Um, you know that's you know regardless of what you look at, we don't you know K through 12. We the U S does not test at the top um, in mathematics or science. Uh, so there is improvement there. Uh, we do have you know some of the best uh, or the best um, in terms of higher education, college, uh, et cetera. Um, but in terms of a bubble in higher education, what I would say is we may have a bubble in pockets, you know, of things that we don't, you know, things that the economy isn't necessarily asking for. Um, but I don't think you can have a bubble in people who are very good at math and people who are very good at science, um, engineering, et cetera. I, I don't think that there's there's any way to have a bubble there. And I think if we concentrate on, you know, making that as popular as playing football in high school or being very good at baseball, et cetera, you know, um, we can we can really improve things. Uh, technical education was another uh, area uh, where being a plumber, you know, plumbers are going to be in short supply shortly. Electricians are going to be in short supply. Uh, things of that nature where you don't necessarily think of them as uh, careers that are, 
you know, um, noteworthy, but they're incredibly important. And, you know, the trades are something that uh, other areas of the world take very seriously and are very proud of their uh, trade societies. So I think there's there's a lot of different ways to go about it and a lot of things that can be improved. Um, it, it's a, it's an open topic. That was one of the first, uh, actually the first podcast we did from our, our, our radio show was Pat Harker, who is the former dean of Wharton. Uh, and uh, he what's surprising is the former dean of Wharton was he was suggesting people should less go to college, less go to university here, and go to more of those trade schools for those, for that exact reason, that there's going to be more need for that those type of jobs in the future. I thought that was, that was really interesting for the, for the Wharton dean to actually be making those kind of comments. I could not agree more. He's not the best people here and now, but the of stagnation He gave that up several generations ago in the I wanted you guys to each maybe give a few seconds on so Sam on, on Avalon. We've talked a lot about uh, the economy. What a little bit just to uh, you know a minute on where is Sam? Uh, I mean, where is Avalon? The this positioning of you guys when, and and how they should follow all your work that that you write a very nice daily note on on what's going on in, in the economy where they can find that. Sure, you can find me at Samuel Ryan's on Twitter. I write a. It's instant, almost daily, we'll call it, macro note on what's going on, what I'm seeing. Uh, it can be a little tongue-in-cheek. Uh, I try to make it a little fun to read. Uh, but that can be found um, scrolling down through my Twitter handle, and I tweet it out every time I, I write one. Um, in terms of finding Avalon, you can find us at avalonadvisors.com. We're an ultra-high-net-worth money manager in Houston, Texas, uh, where it's always chilly and always comfortable weather. <laughs> uh, um, but we... Uh, we currently manage about $9 billion, uh, and right now we're, we're very interested in kind of looking at the unrated municipal market. Interesting. That seems like a, a topic for another show with our, our final uh, final two-minute countdown here. Um, so, Daniel, tell people a little bit. We've had you on before, but just to remind people about the Daily Feather and the, and the Quill Intelligence and all the different work that you guys are producing on, on a daily basis. Uh, sure, of course. Um, from the, the first week that I left the Fed, which was June of 2015, I have published a, a, the Weekly Quill. It is a weekly deep dive, more institutional type of newsletter. Uh, but we also started the Daily Feather over a year ago, and it's got a cult following. We have a lot of fun doing it. Uh, but, but go to quillintelligence.com. Um, follow me at Martino Booth on Twitter. Uh, but I would say give, give the Daily Feather a, a go. Because the goal of the entire, uh, the, the goal of our entire research outfit is to go where the sell side does not go. And that is great. I mean, I I've been enjoying the Daily Feather. I've been a subscriber, and I, I love reading that one good chart every morning. Lots of different points in it, uh, with some very entertaining writing to describe it. Uh, and Sam's also got some great pieces. And, and Avalon, uh, thanks for for joining us, both of you, Samuel Ryan's, Daniel DiMartino Booth. <music> Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.